Welcome to this new episode of A Shot in the Arm podcast season two. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights, how we make sense of new infectious diseases and how we adapt to them, how our responses to new deadly threats not just contain a particular infectious disease, but build a common resilience and bring us together in ways that enhance respect for human rights rather than threaten people already at the margins of society. In this and the next few episodes, we're going to take a hard look at COVID-19, a disease caused by a new coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. It has infected, at time of recording, over 113,000 and killed over 4,000 people around the world. It has struck economies and forced entire countries into lockdown. We're going to look at the facts what COVID-19 is, how the coronavirus is transmitted, and what we can do as responsible and engaged citizens to restrict its spread and limit its impact. We will ask experts in the field for their insights into what has happened and what may happen next, what we can learn from the careful, determined planning of some countries and the chaotic panic denials of others. First, some things that we know. This coronavirus appeared at the end of last year, 2019, first in Wuhan, China. It spread rapidly over the course of the first three months of 2020 to pretty much every country of the world. We know that it spreads by human-to-human contact when people are in close contact with one another, and that it spreads through droplets from an infected person who sneezes or coughs. These droplets can land in the mouths and noses of other people who are close by. And there are some things that we don't know yet. We don't know what its generalised mortality rate is. At the moment, we are calculating a number from the number of confirmed infections and number of confirmed deaths. We don't know how infectious it actually is, how many people are now infected, and in large part here in the United States, that's because we simply haven't provided adequate tests. And we don't know how long this pandemic will last. But we do know how to prevent its spread. The CDC website is a really good resource of reliable information, actually, www.cdc.gov, and it's worth reiterating. We should wash our hands regularly and rigorously for as long as two verses of happy birthday. We should avoid close contact. There's a wonderful new phrase we are learning to use, social distancing. Now that's the phrase of the year if ever there was one. We should cover our coughs and sneezes, making sure to wash our hands afterwards. We should avoid touching our faces. I know I find this one incredibly difficult. I don't think I've ever been so aware of my face and all the urges to itch, tickle and scratch. We should stay at home if we are feeling unwell. That's an obvious one. And we should wear face masks if we are feeling sick. But as I recently learned on a trip to Cambodia, we shouldn't be wearing a face mask if we are out and about as one of the worried well. There's a shortage of masks and the priority should really be for healthcare workers on the front line. And above all, we should clean and disinfect the surfaces that we use in our daily lives, from phones to laptops and door handles to faucets. In this episode, we are going to attempt to place this outbreak in its broader context of how we impact our society, other species and our climate, and how in return these things bring us into contact with new diseases. Because it's clear that while we may manage our way out of the current outbreak, and while SARS-CoV-2 may be the latest virus, it won't be the last. So to help us make sense of what we currently know, and how this outbreak fits into our overall preparations for pandemics, 
I'm delighted to welcome to the show Dr. Peter Daszak, President of the EcoHealth Alliance, an international nonprofit that leads scientific research into the critical connections between human, animal, and environmental health. Peter, welcome to the show. This couldn't be happening at a more exciting time. Great to be here, Ben, and you're absolutely right. It's uh, unfortunately true. So, Peter, how how are we connected? It's an it's an odd route, isn't it? It is very weird. We're, we're connected through emerging diseases. So, your former boss, Peter Piot, who's head of London School of Hygiene, discovered Ebola, is from Belgium, and knows one of my board members, Marianne de Bakker, who's at Bayer, and made the connection that way. Yeah, yet again, Belgians are at the forefront of infectious <laughs> exactly, disease. Yeah, exactly right. And they, they really punch above their weight on yeah. this issue, for sure. So let's start with the current outbreak with COVID-19. Were you expecting something like this? Well, I mean, we've been saying for years that, that coronavirus is a high risk, um, that China is a hotspot, that Southeast Asia is a hotspot for these new diseases, and that things like the wildlife trade dried them. So... Yeah, I mean, we were expecting something like this sometime. How well prepared are we, do you think? You know, I don't think we've well prepared for these things. I think that it's an unfortunate thing, but we're really good at responding to a crisis, um, whether that's an earthquake or a hurricane, but we're really not good at, at prevention. And that's where we fail, I think, with pandemics. We're not good at getting ready and trying to reduce the risk. That's what we should be doing with these things. And we're sort of at the point where, you know, as as of today, Italy is in lockdown. Yeah. China seems to be beginning to turn this around. And there is a growth of an, an outspurt of uh, infections happening in the US and around the world. To your mind, having worked in this field for so long, how bad is it? Well, I think we're going to look to China for the trajectory for the rest of the world. And we're just at the beginning here in the States of ramping up new cases it's going to be very chaotic, very disturbing for a few weeks. And then we've got, if we do it right, if we really can try and contain it and do some dramatic sort of restrictions on travel and all the rest of it, maybe a few months and we'll be able to get over the worst part. One of the comments that a public health official working here in the city said to me last week was that the problem with the containment strategy is that you, you, you basically pent up the um, uh, the spread of the infection, you just slow it. What that does is buy you time, but yeah. it doesn't stop the the spread of the infection. Do you see containment in that way? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it but we, it buys us time for a good reason. I think that you know the the pretty drastic measures that China took bought the world time. How we use that time is, is the problem. We didn't use that time to get prepared. We didn't use that time to to really talk to the public about what's likely to happen. So now we have a situation in the US where we're going to have to do some of those drastic containment measures. We really need to use that time to get prepared. And and what would you say are some of those containment methods? Are we talking about states being in lockdown? Are we talking about communities doing more than the kind of self-isolation that we're being encouraged to do at the moment? I think it's more subtle. I think it's that that every day we're going to wake up and see something new and unexpected happen, a new measure put in place we didn't think would happen. You know, we know from looking at Europe and other countries, we're going to see closures of sporting events and mass gatherings. We know we're going to see some communities hit harder, and they're going to be on a more severe lockdown. We don't yet know in the States which communities are going to be hit harder. 
So we don't yet know where those lockdowns are going to happen. I'm sure we'll see something like that. One of the things that, that came out of China in the early data was that kids under the age of 10 didn't seem to be, mm. well, they might be being infected, but they weren't showing signs of the COVID disease. Does that surprise you? And Well, is that an accurate representation? It seems to be accurate. There's a lot of talk about what are the unknown cases out there, but I think China's done a really intense job of tracking them down. And it seems that children aren't a major part of the outbreak. It's a great thing, actually. I mean, if we think about flu and other diseases where kids really drive the spread and they drive the, the dynamics, it becomes a huge problem as kids gather in schools at the beginning of the school year and drive an, a new outbreak. So we're not seeing that. And that's actually positive, And hopefully that helps us contain it better. Working in the global health field, there's a, there's a certain irony to all of this in that the US has been very altruistic in helping other countries prepare for epidemics, to prepare for outbreaks. And yet the response that we've had over the last couple of weeks here in the United States perhaps has been a bit fractured, a bit, a bit frozen. And I know you're just in, in town in San Francisco for a couple of days and you know, yesterday at the Port of Oakland, everyone could see this cruise ship coming in uh, finally to disembark its passengers. And well, hang on a minute, wasn't that exactly what happened in Japan a few <laughs> weeks ago? So, so a bit of hubris perhaps on behalf of the United States? Well, I think that people really didn't expect it to get here eventually. I think that we felt that it would be contained in some countries. Once it, once it got to Iran and Italy, um, and then we saw... This thing is going to spread around Europe. It's going to get to the US. And I think that's when we rapidly started hearing from CDC and other trusted voices, get ready for a pandemic. Unfortunately, we knew on the cruise ship issue, we knew what to do with a cruise ship. We knew that the Diamond Princess in Japan wasn't handled correctly and that it led to people getting infected who probably wouldn't have been if they disembarked earlier. So I think we failed on that. And it's certainly, it's good to see it happening now, but it's maybe a few days or a week too late. Many of the A Shot in the Arm podcast subscribers are people who work in, in public health. And I wonder what advice you might want to give us all, because in, in, in a sense, our actions reinforce the words and the communications that we have. Um, what should we be doing, both on a daily basis and in our work? Yeah, that's a tough one. Well, I really think we need to be ahead of the curve. We need to lead by example. So we need to be doing the things that we're telling the public to do, and we need to be doing them days in advance of that. But people are going to think it's over the top to close offices, to close you know, uh, mass gatherings, to be elbow bumping and foot tapping instead of hugging and shaking hands. But we need to be doing that days in advance of everybody else to lead by example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so going on to the broader picture You've been working almost, I suppose, for this moment, for, for much of your, your life. Can you tell us a bit about your background? You're a biologist by training, right? Well, I, I'm a, a wildlife person. You know, I, was a, I did zoology when that was a thing back in the 80s and got into diseases almost by accident, but found them fascinating. I did a research project on parasitic diseases of reptiles but there's just this idea that something lives inside another animal and exploits that animal for its own gain. It's just something extremely disturbing about that and quite exciting. And I, and I really tried to follow that pathway. I ended up working at CDC, volunteering when I came to the US, 
um, during an outbreak of Nipah virus in Malaysia that came from fruit bats and got into people and started killing them by encephalitis, you know, causing brain infections. I found that fascinating. How can a fruit bat virus get into people um, in, a, in a tropical area and, and threaten the world? So I, I just really found that idea that diseases can pop up out of seemingly uh, nowhere and then spread and have a sort of existential threat to our species to be really something to focus on. And surely it's a biological phenomenon. It's a, a sociological phenomenon. Surely it's then uh, measurable, analyzable, and predictable. And if we can predict it, maybe we can stop it. And that's become our organization's goals. EcoHealth Alliance is very interesting to me because it's sort of a marriage of the conservation movement, wildlife conservation movement and the environment with medical health. And could you just sort of tell us a bit about the goals and objectives of, of EcoHealth and what it is you guys are, are looking to do? I think you're right. It is unusual. And it, and it really the origins of why we're working on these two sides came out of an understanding that that diseases that threaten human health often originate in animals and they, they emerge into people by something we're doing to wildlife or the environment around the world. So our, our strategy is to understand that process better. And that's not a straightforward thing. You know, we, we tend to look at scientists and medical research as focusing in on the pathogen, the virus, understanding how it binds to cells, designing a, a very clever high-tech vaccine solution that they will gen inject and it will stop the problem. Whereas probably the real solution to these pandemics is something a lot messier. It's something to do with how people around the world interact with nature, how you know economic development drives roads being built into the forest and mining systems mm. that then bring people in and expose them to new pathogens. That's a more difficult uh, problem to solve, and I think that's where the real action is going to be over the next few decades. Part of the things that you do is to document and characterize the various viruses and infectious agents that we might potentially be at risk from. And if I'm right, you guys documented the closest relative to the, the current coronavirus. How did you guys do that? Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, you know, this is like stamp collecting. We, be, we often got criticized for doing this, just going out there and finding new viruses and, and documenting them, keeping them in a database and publishing them. So about, I think, 2013, we were in a bat cave in Yunnan province, China, and caught a, a horseshoe bat and took a sample. That sample contained a virus that's the closest relative of, of the virus that causes COVID-19. It's 96% similar across the whole genome. It's probably not the actual viral origin of this new disease, but it's a very close relative. There are probably others out there still circulating in bats that, that this thing originated from. And we do this because we want to know what's the diversity of these viruses. You know, if, if we know that SARS emerged and can, can cause death in people, how many other SARS-related viruses could emerge in the future? Where are they? Who's exposed? And can we try and reduce that exposure risk? And that's been something we've been working on for 15 years with China. And this has been particularly a, a sort of a public health level of intervention. To what extent are you guys involved in, 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 in some of the serious lab stuff, you know, looking at potential treatments and vaccines? Well, we're, we're very involved. So, you know, when we find a virus that we do a phylogeny, and we look at how closely related it is to things like SARS, if we find one that's very closely related, we work with collaborators who then 
analyze the um, surface projections, the spike proteins that the virus uses to bind to human cells and, and test them out to see whether that new virus could infect humans, whether it causes disease in mouse models of infection, and whether it's treatable. And we found a bunch that are able to infect people, probably, that don't respond well to vaccines and drugs. And it really highlights our, uh, that we're kind of wide open to these outbreaks. And I think this is, to my mind, a very interesting phenomenon. We, we estimate there are about 1.7 million unknown viruses in wildlife of the, of the families that can infect people. We only know of you know a couple of thousand maximum. Why is that? Why aren't we interested in finding out what's out there that could actually threaten our health and our economic future? COVID-19 is a wake-up call to go out and do that. Do you think that the, um, I mean, obviously the resources that the world is investing in preparation, those resources are limited and we, yeah. we need to do much more. Why do you think we haven't been able to understand the impact that our growing urbanization and our, our sort of growing, you know, sort of coming up, up against nature, why we haven't understood that, that this could have a health impact on us? Well, you, you know, this is not a political comment, but Al Gore called it an inconvenient truth, climate change. It's a hugely inconvenient truth that our demand here in the US for things like palm oil or furniture or all of the products that come out of tropical forests drives not only conservation threats to these, these um, tropical forest ecosystems, but also threatens us through the pandemics that are released from these areas. Um, it's a, a product of what we do. And we do this, we sort of separate ourselves from the problem. We see great value in economic development, both in the countries that are doing it and in our own globalized dependence on globalized trade. But then when a pathogen emerges, we feel that it's somehow separate to all of that. Well, actually, it's driven by that. And I think when we connect those two things and start to realize that this is a product of our own economic development, then we should start to look at that as a thing we need to contain, a risk that we need to insure against. So there's a, a behavior change or a behavior modification component to this. One of the questions that has been put to the Chinese particularly is around the wildlife trade and that that this needs to be stamped out and 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 mm. stopped how realistic is it do you think to just just advocate for a rapid termination of the wildlife trade oh, it's massively unrealistic um china did um a lot actually after sars they closed down the wildlife markets where sars emerged for a few months they opened them up again now there's a huge demand for wildlife as food it's it's a cultural deeply historical tradition in southern China. It's not just going to stop because it's illegal. We know that from ivory, from uh, you know rhino horn trade. And these things are very valuable. The rarer an animal gets, the more expensive it becomes, the more highly prized it becomes, the more of a show-off item it is for a business person to buy that as a meal for their colleagues. Um, I think what we need to do is you know put in place the laws to, to regulate the trade empower the police to go in and take action, but also work with the communities that hunt wildlife, that eat wildlife, find out what the incentives are, give them alternatives and persuade them that it's bad for their health, it's bad for the environment, it's bad for the planet. And we need to really do some deep research around that. Another element that, that you're touching on is the sort of engagement of communities, affected communities. 
And I think one of the things that has struck me about our response to COVID so far has been a patchy ability on behalf of the authorities to build trust in our public health messaging and our our public health infrastructure. And, and that seems to me, after the actual sort of science of detection, as being the single most important component of a pandemic response. You focus a lot of attention on the education and engagement of communities. Why is that so important to the EcoHealth mission? Well, we work in hotspots for emerging disease solely. That's where we focus our work. And usually tropical areas with lots of wildlife, often remote. Um, they're not our countries. We're there as guests. So the first thing we do every time we go into a new area is talk to the local community, meet with village leaders, explain the goals of what we didn't ask them permission. Even if a country said we can do that, ask their permission to come in and work with them and understand the process. If we're ever going to do anything that's long lasting in a place, we need local engagement to, to get it to work. And that we've learned that over the years and we, we feel that very strongly. So we've got COVID-19 that we're dealing with at the moment, but there are likely to be others. What do you think are the principles of pandemic preparation that you know we really all ought to be investing in and, and supporting? Well, the first thing is to accept that it's not only that there are likely to be others, there will be others. It's mathematical certainty. And we've tracked emerging diseases for the last 60 years. We've, we've made a point of this, of looking at the frequency of the events that lead to them, and it's increasing exponentially. They're going to come faster than they have in the past. They're going to emerge and spread quicker out of the origin. So we know that SARS took two or three months to get out of China. This virus took two weeks. The next virus might take two days. We know that the impact is going to be bigger because we're relying more and more on globalized travel and trade. So the economic impact of SARS was 10 to 30 billion. This one's already costing hundreds of billions uh, and affecting the markets to the tune of trillions of dollars. And so if that's true, then our pandemic preparedness should be really a high priority. And we need to be looking at the process of disease emergence, not just thinking, well, we'll find out what the next one is quicker and we'll design a vaccine quicker. Vaccines take a long, long time, years usually. And in that period when, where a pandemic spreading quicker and affecting more people quicker, we're going to see death before we get to a vaccine, as we are doing with COVID-19. Let's get ready for the process. Let's look at the underlying causes. Let's address those issues. Let's reduce risk around the things that cause them. And let's see this as the end of the pandemic era. Are you finding that People in authority, politicians are more responsive to this to this way of thinking now. Well, they're more responsive right now because, <laughs> you know, we're in a pandemic. So we need to talk in two years. I mean, this is the real problem. It's almost a human nature problem that we, when a crisis happens, it's heroic to deal with it. Um, when there's nothing going on, it's the opposite of heroic to spend U.S. taxpayer dollars in foreign countries to help them avoid an outbreak that by a rare chance might spread and become a pandemic. Well, those rare chances are getting much more common. The impact is much higher, and it's actually good public health to do that. And there's the old adage about an ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure. We're talking about a few billion dollars of prevention being worth a few trillion dollars of cure. It's going to cost so much money to deal with a pandemic now and in the future. So, Peter, one of the things that 
I think is so fascinating about you and your work is that you remain optimistic, that this too shall pass. And I'm sort of really interested, where do you get that optimism from? Well, I don't really know where it comes from, but you know, um, it, I think that we have to be optimistic because yeah, it will it will end. Look at China. Uh, today we hear that President Xi is visiting Wuhan. They're already talking about the end of the outbreak. They, they saw the lowest increase in new cases today. So it's it's beginning to be over. So then if we think about the US, in a few months we're going to be in that position. And let's get ready for it being over. Let's think about that and let's try not to cause too much damage by our overreaction right now. But also, let's think about the next one. I mean, we're already getting ready for that. We're already planning our research once this pandemic's passed to find out where the next one's most likely to come from, to raise awareness, to try and reduce the risk and actually stop it. That's where we need to be. And that's a positive thing. I mean, that's a world that's going to be a better place. I look to 50 years ahead from now. I'm hoping people will think about this period as the pandemic here and think, wow, those guys, they really didn't know what they were doing very well. They kept suffering from these pandemic events, but eventually they found the cure and they stopped them. And that's the vision. And that's an optimistic and positive vision. Well, Peter, I know you're extremely busy. I believe you're off to Mexico after this sojourn in the San Francisco Bay Area. What can we do to help? How can we get in touch with the EcoHealth Alliance? Oh, go to our website at ecohealthalliance.org, get involved, follow us on Twitter at EcoHealthNYC, and find out about the programs we're organizing and, and start to get involved with those programs, please. Well, thank you very much, Peter. Really appreciate you being here today. You are a shot in the arm. My pleasure, Ben. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you found the show useful and informative. As always, we would love to know your thoughts on the subjects we have covered and the issues you think we ought to address. Please do contact us through the usual social networks, including Twitter and Facebook at Shot Arm Podcast. Our thanks go to our producer and director, Eric Aspera of Newstock Media, to Brian Ragas and to our intern, Will Lansdale. This episode is dedicated to the incredible nurses and doctors of Hubei province in China who have saved countless lives and in some cases sacrificed their own lives in what we hope will be defeating the current wave of this new epidemic. Well, thanks for joining us and have a great week and a safe week, everyone.